0: Do you want to do a theme tune, Mark?
1: Yeah. <laughs> da, 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 da. Dungeons and dragons, you know. Right, hey, that'll
0: do it. Are, are you getting your uh, 80s electro pop out?
2: <laughs> and then he's looking through music.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of a wish my joke. Yeah.
0: Thanks. So today we are talking about combat in Dungeons & Dragons, various things to do with it. So we're talking about action economy, we're talking about how combat is handled, and what combat in real life is like and how it compares. Today we have me, Drew Murray. We also have Ian Reynolds, if you want to say hi, Ian. Hello. We also have Robert Reynolds, if you want to say hi, Robert. Hello. And we also have Mark Bulls. Do you want to say hi, Mark?
1: Hi, Mark. <laughs>
0: We're Waiting for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was so upset that the other two didn't do that that I had to hold out, and then you weren't going to get you weren't feeding me the line, so I got upset.
0: <laughs> All right, you, you can get me back at the next one. Okay. So, um, the four of us have, have had uh, various dealings with role playing games over the years. Robert, I'd say you're probably the most experienced of us when it comes to both role playing games and when it comes to the variety of medieval uh, era weapons. Uh, in real life as well.
2: If that's your way of saying you're an old part, then probably <laughs> yes. I would agree with that. Uh, no, yeah, I probably have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when you start counting it in decades, the way I do, <laughs> that's a fairly good
0: indicator. Ian, you are pretty similar to your dad in that you've got a lot of knowledge about weapons. You seem to know a lot more about modern weapons. Yeah. Certainly, then than your dad might, but. You know you weigh around a longsword and a, and a bow.
3: Yeah, fairly well. I can also use two swords at the same
0: time. Properly as well, rather than just flailing about and accidentally chopping your own arm off or something.
2: Yeah. Proud Dad moment. He? He's incredibly good at it. He's possibly one of the best two-handed weapons fighters I've seen.
0: One of the things that I thought was really cool and something that I've been looking into uh, myself since is horseback combat training. Was it for stage? Was it for show? Yeah, uh,
3: it was a group called Riders of the Storm. They were based up on uh, Kelly Cranky. Uh, we were training them to fight with swords so they could do a medieval-style show. Uh, so we trained them how to fight with swords, and they trained us how to ride the horses. And during that, we got a chance to actually try and horseback combat.
1: I was just going to say, for any of our listeners that don't know, Kelly Cranky is Jimmy Cranky's big sister.
0: I'm afraid of our listeners who don't know who that
1: is. <laughs> the like Jimmy Crankus, he's been in Absolutely Fabulous and stuff. Okay, maybe the one.
0: not Yeah, uh, Mark, you are our resident physics expert. Yeah. Yep. that's would
1: say uh,
3: no pressure. science guru, full stop.
1: Not too bad with some medieval
0: weapons. <laughs> yep. Once upon a time, that's been a while. I-, I would say that Mark, out of all of us, you are the only one that has the patience to look into the maths and science behind What's anything. That-
1: really. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it's nothing bad, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's just you're the only one there. Very rewarding fields. Very rewarding field
0: i was say, you, you keep telling us how easy it is to do these things and to look into these things, so the only conclusion I can draw is that the other three of us are just lazy.
3: That is my conclusion too, so... Lazy and not qualified physicists or mathematicians.
0: You're currently teaching maths, aren't you?
1: Maths, uh, a little bit of physics... Yeah, for the moment it's maths and physics. Lovely normal maths and normal maths, hey, sort of upper high school level maths and some boring engineering stuff about heat and sound and light and blah.
0: It's going to be interesting for your students anyway.
1: Not if I have anything to do with it.
0: <laughs> you are spending quite a lot of time doing your, your notes and things so I, I, I would quite enjoy seeing what one of your lessons are quite like actually. I've
2: actually thought about going along. <laughs> Ooh, that's something we should do. Go along in heckle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. The point that we all got together is I came up with uh, a, a trap to get you guys to talk to me more and that was to uh, <laughs> uh, to set up a podcast which we're doing as a, a short uh, five or six episode run as this experiment and so this first one is to do with uh, combat and stuff. Some of us have been getting somewhat frustrated with people on the internet being what we might consider silly maybe?
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, so two things that I think we should start off with uh, I, in very similar veins are archery, well, I think we should start off with archery, um, and archery speed and fantasy effects that you can pull off with bows. How realistic they are, how you can do them mechanically in the game, and what other effects might come into play. I know that, Ian, uh, you had a gripe about the speed of arrows at some point. Do you want to go into that a bit for us?
3: Yeah, I was thinking that because a a good archer can fire 12 arrows a minute, that been allowed only a single shot was a bit possibly unfair, but we discussed it and we realised that actually two shots every round would almost double the feasible shooting rate. And then I actually looked into the player's handbook a bit more and realised that at, was it fifth level, uh, Rangers get a second attack.
0: Uh, so that means that it does get doubled <laughs> and <laughs> it actually becomes unfeasible. There's bound to be uh, a world record for number of arrows fired. Like I'm sure that the 12 a minute is probably an, like, an average or something.
3: Maybe your ideal was
2: 12 arrows a minute. But that was 12 accurate arrows a minute. Yes. It hmm. is possible to do things like 16, 17 arrows, but you start to lose out on your, your accuracy.
0: So would we say that going by the, the Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition rules that we're playing through at the moment, the, the rangers getting an additional attack and fighters also getting an additional attack at a certain points? so fighters and rangers being able to fire double that amount, roughly equating to about 24 hours. Uh, hours? Arrows.
1: Shall we maybe, <laughs> not to sound like I've got a, a, an axe I like to grind, Should we maybe talk yeah. about the actual maths of it so we know we've we'll got figures to compare? Right, so you said that we've got 12 rounds per minute is the actual real life figure that we're, we're striving towards.
3: Yeah, that's the... the uh, player's stuff.
1: handbook says we, we have how many per round? One one per round?
3: One arrow. Uh, one shot per round. shot yeah. per, uh, per
1: round. Up
0: until a certain level. And this is not including spells and things that can magically enhance this.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is vanilla.
0: Yeah, this is just basic attack.
1: And a one round is... How, how long is the accepted duration of one round? Six seconds. Yeah, six seconds. Yep. So we've got one per round... We've got 60 seconds a minute. Divide that by our 6 seconds per round. It's 10 rounds. So 10 shots per round. 10 shots per minute, sorry.
0: Which is what anyone could do. So even a wizard that's not necessarily trained in combat, he'd be able to pull that off.
3: No. yeah. You need to be specifically trained in archery to be able to lose 12 arrows in a minute. Just because of the, the difficulty of getting the arrow sitting correctly on the string, making sure that the knock is actually in, and that if it's a 3 fletched arrow, that the knock arrow is pointing away from the bow. To get all that perfect, you need, I'd say, at least several years of training to be able to get that consistent.
1: But again, the figure we've worked out for the game, if your 12 rounds per minute is 12 on-target rounds, yeah then our 10 shots per minute hasn't actually taken account of whether your attack rolls have passed. That's more like 10 attempts per minute, actually. So it might be that that extra attack we're talking about that the—that a, a ranger or a fighter gets at the fifth level might actually bring it up to a more realistic figure.
3: But then again, you could have every single shot hit. The attempt is it's a a quick shot on what would technically be, or could be a moving target, which makes it more difficult. So the, the 10 shots in a minute gives you that bit of extra time to attempt to get the hit on target. If it's not on target, you're still going to be spending the same amount of time trying to Acquire a target, figure out how much lead you need to give it. uh, So that if, when you get that second attack, it's at 5th level, I just looked it up, you should technically take a penalty because you'd be trying to shoot faster, which would mean you'd be losing your accuracy.
0: So this is where I think that some of the other mechanics come into play sort of try to to bear this out, this uh, simulation of real archery. Uh, When you get to the untrained classes like wizards and things. The only way that they'd get to use a bow without massive penalties is if they were, say, an elf or something. But even then, they're not necessarily going to... uh, Statistically speaking, if you were rolling for your stats and you had uh, all wizards ever rolled, ever, their strength scores are not going to be equal to or anywhere near uh, the average strength scores of all the fighters ever rolled in the world. Yeah, well, the...
3: For the the bows, it's a dexterity score.
0: Dexterity, strength, combat, sort of based with a a wizard, you'd go with more like intelligence and wisdom for your saving throws and and things like that. Yeah. So you're less likely to get a a strong and dexterous wizard, um, necessarily. So their ability with bows, statistically speaking, uh, when you're rolling a d20, would be reduced. Uh, And so even though they could lose 10 arrows in a minute... Those arrows are going to be far less accurate than those fired fight by a fighter.
3: Yeah, it'd be, it'd be more luck that would result in an actual hit.
1: And you can, well, you can incorporate a DM can incorporate that in his gameplay through, you know, description <laughs> it's through narrative, rather than actually say you fired and you missed. You can say, oh, you've fumbled with your arrow and you're going to take your shot next turn or something like that.
3: Yeah, you try and take the shot and the arrow falls off the side of your hand. Yeah, which I've had happen in the past. It does occasionally happen.
0: See, that that's a, another thing as well is the description of things. Because a, a lot of the time the rules make it seem like it is this very flat, uh, has it done this or this, and sometimes the description that the GM or the players come up with can add that realism factor in, that, that they can account for all this extra randomness. Which is what the system's trying to do anyway, it's trying to like account for randomness. But uh, yeah, there's certainly extra that you can put in narratively.
2: Why we're so talking about actually speed? Can I just First of all, see any comments about Lars Anderson? Who's uh, Lars
3: Anderson? He's an internet fraud. <laughs> claims to be able to shoot like four million arrows a minute.
2: I can't remember whether he's, he's Danish or Norwegian or something like that. It's kind of an evening, but he touts himself as the the modern day of the real life legolas.
1: Is he the guy that jumps about his videos? Aye. Yeah, yep, that's the one, Mark. Uh,
2: yes, he, Does he claims. A, a style that was based on Sumerian, a forgotten archery technique, which apparently he remembers now. Don't um, <laughs> uh, get me he, wrong, he, 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 he can certainly shoot arrows quickly. Uh, you never ever see him shooting at anything further away than a few yards, which really isn't that big a deal. Right. If he could turn around and say, oh, Look at me doing this sort of rate of fire accurately out to maybe 30-40 yards, then maybe I might be more impressed. But as far as I'm concerned, he's a numpty. Yeah. Uh, it's Sh- relevant to archery as a discipline. Doesn't it claim to be able to shoot an arrow out of the air with another arrow? There's so many claims <laughs> on the commas that you make uh, that are just complete and utter rubbish. The Donald Trump of archery.
1: I am going to fire the best arrow. <laughs> it's going to get be the best. It's going to be the greatest. It's going to be great.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's funny. A lot of people do cite Legolas, you were saying he's the, the Legolas type person in real life archery. Uh, a lot of people cite Legolas and the things that he does in the Lord of the Rings films as something they think that Dungeons and Dragons characters should be able to aspire to. What are people's thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, the, the elves in Lord of the Rings can sort of distort reality in sort of minor subtle ways anyway. Legolas is described as walking on, you know, when they're on the Cadaras. And the rest of the fellowship are forging through the snow. He simply walks on top of it without falling through. Hmm. So the elves in Tolkien are sort of they can do sort of you know, like you know like press the digitation level uh, augments on reality on 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 a whim. So like I've got no problem with seeing you know, the discussion that's coming up. I know, I know what's coming, but like the multiple iron arrow, uh, 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 multiple arrow shooting. Which um, Legolas might do, I see as a, a a racial thing, as an elf thing that you can do, not as a archer thing you can do. Mm.
3: Well, it is possible to fire two arrows from a bow. I've tried it. The accuracy is hopeless, but it's possible to hold them and waste them. Just <laughs> yeah, you...
2: they'll
1: come out the other side. Yeah,
3: <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe not more than a, a foot
2: or two. <laughs> I think. The whole multiple arrow thing especially uh, is an issue. As an archer of a considerable long time, there are so many things that you need to take into consideration for firing multiple arrows. Everybody just thinks, and it has come up on some threads recently, and people just seem to think that adding an extra arrow onto your bow will have no impact on the return speed of the limbs. That's a load of rubbish. Traditional arrows are heavy. They're much, much heavier than modern arrows. The bows themselves don't tend to be quite as responsive and fast in regards to the limb return. In other words, the limb going from being drawn to being undrawn, which is what propels the arrow. There are also factors that you've got to take into account. As arrows have a thing called a spine to them. In other words, the force that the bow puts through the arrow bends it as it leaves the bow. So if you reduce the amount of force that that bow is putting through the arrow, it doesn't flex the arrows as much. If it doesn't flex the arrow as much, that will affect the accuracy. Oh. So every time you add another arrow onto that string, the image in question in the thread was like last with three arrows. So you're reducing effectively the power of the bow by three. Every time you add another arrow onto that string, you impact the amount of force the bow is able to put through the arrow, reduces the amount that that arrow will flex, and the reduction in the flex will then affect the accuracy.
0: Yeah. I can see a counter-argument being, well, surely you should just draw the bow back three times as much, but of course we get into to very, <laughs> <laughs> very obvious problems with that.
2: Yeah, well, yeah.
1: I need more string.
2: There's an old medieval term that a bow is a stick nine-tenths broken. And the manufacture of a bow, a boy tillers the bow. In other words, he exercises it, he bends it as he's making it, and you bend it to maximum drawing. If you take the bow beyond that drawing, there is a very, very good chance that that bow will break. If you're taking the bow beyond that drawing, plus adding three times the amount of weight that it's not it's used to propelling forwards, you're tripling the chance of that bow breaking. Again, I've had somebody make the comment that English longbows are well, as thick as a man's wrist and they're not fragile. On the contrary, I have had bows break. On I've made my own bows. The one that I shoot at the moment is one that I've made. Yes they look like big heavy sticks but they are nine tens broken and it doesn't take that much to push them over the edge. You should never ever borrow someone's bow if you're taller or bigger than them because you're inevitably going to draw it beyond their draw length, and you're on the risk of breaking it very much like muscles. and they need to be warmed up and nurtured eh, otherwise you'll break them. So with the whole kind of element archery thing from an archer's perspective I tend to look at it from a practical perspective of that's just bloody stupid. That won't work. I mean, there are so many factors that will make it completely unfeasible. But then there's the side of me that loves fantasy, I loves d and think, you know, well, there is that kind of magical aspect to the whole pastime that you think, cut it some slack and let it go for the sake of narrative and for, for the sake of the game, and for the sake of making things, it's that you know, the rule cool thing. I do accept that there is that, so I would never ever say, absolutely not, shooting three arrows off a bow is a load of nonsense. So there's no point doing. It. I would say, go with it. But it's going to have impact. I mean, my response in the, in the thread that this came up on, you're going to have a disadvantage with it. You know, it's not going to be as accurate as as useful as just a single aim, full power shot. But go with aim, you know? There's no point just being an arbitrary. Nope, it won't work.
0: Yeah. I know we're deviating slightly from the the Dungeons & Dragons focus uh, that we've had here, but there's we've played it once or twice when I've come up and, and visited you guys in Scotland. The Unisystem, it was that witchcraft game. Yeah. And I've quite enjoyed some of the simplicity that comes with that when it comes to expanding beyond the rule's scope. And when it comes to performing more than one action, each subsequent action gets uh, an additional penalty. And this is where I would probably apply this whole three arrows thing, treat them as three separate attack rolls, if I was ideally manipulating the mechanics in a way that's beyond 5th edition standard and each subsequent attack roll would be worse off. Although I, I, I realise that the reality is that all three attack rolls would be just as bad as each other, because they do all be flying off at the same time.
2: Well, I would tend to disagree. In the fact that you've got three arrows, luck probability, you know, plays a factor. There is a possibility that one of the arrows might just fly quite well. You never know.
3: Yeah, plus, you're going to have one arrow that is set properly, that's going to be fired at the apex, of the flex and the string. It's going to be sitting where it should. The other arrows sitting on top of that are going to be At
1: maximum of one arrow. There's a possibility you could have done three badly, <laughs> <laughs> but there's space for you to get one. Right, like so. What what are the options for knocking the other two? Then so you've got one that's in the traditional knock position. Yeah, but then we're, like is it as simple as just the other two are just on either side of that, or is there
3: a? I would think they would have to be on top because the right. position that you hold ah. impacts the bow as well. If you hold it too low, it gets awkward. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because if you think about it, if you, if you wanted to have all three arrows in a, a position where they'd all be equally knocked as well as they could be, you would be spreading your fingers out across the string to give it that elongated flat bit that would normally be just like the, the little dip of the, yeah. the, the, the parabola with the single arrow. And so the amount that you could draw it back would be significantly reduced by the amount of space that you're yeah, spreading out on yeah. the bottom there.
2: That's another thing that I would also like to point out that doing the, the drawing three arrows would possibly be manageable or doable on a long bow. On a short bow, forget it.
3: Ah, there's no chance on a short bow. The angle in a short bow, when you draw it, actually pinches two fingers against the arrow. The angle's that tight. Yeah,
2: mm. it's so cute. So, things like that, you. Know, so many people just see an image and think, oh, that's really cool I'll do that. But again, practically, when you think, no, nah, that's not it would be fantastic.
0: Hmm. So if there were an ability in the Dungeons & Dragons game to allow you to fire more than one arrow, which I know has been the case in previous editions, I'm not sure about 5th edition, but in previous editions you could take like a feat or something, uh, and it would allow you to shoot an additional arrow each time you took the feat or something. I suppose what we're we're landing on is that the way to manage that is either magically, as in Tolkien Elves, uh, where you're slightly manipulating reality, or you are somehow creating a new type of bow that is designed to fire yeah, three yeah. arrows. Yeah, I think that's pretty
3: much the only options.
1: You could have a, a bow with two strings, couldn't you?
0: No. No.
1: Why? I don't mean a, I don't mean take a bow and just add an extra string on it. I mean a...
0: You're not like Ripley in Aliens, like strapping two, like, like a flamer and a machine gun together. Could you strap two longbows together <laughs> side by side and just... No. <laughs> no. <laughs>
3: I, I wouldn't say that would work. Because one of the things when you draw the bow, the string rotates slightly and that pulls the arrow against the bow. So if you've got two bows strapped to each other, one arrow's going to be getting pulled
2: away from the bow. Right. And obviously, if you're, when you're strapping two bows together, they need to be side by side. For side. Uh, with medieval European, actually, you always shoot off the knuckle of the palm your hand. So if you had two bows together, you wouldn't be able to do that. You'd only be able to do that with one arrow. Of one bow, the other one you would have to swap it to the opposite side. It's still doable. Hmm. Hmm. But it changes completely the way that the arrow would need to be set up, the, that you would need to draw the bow. Plus, you would need to knock the two arrows individually.
3: So you'd be doubling the time spent loading the bow as well. Sure.
1: I'm not saying it would be practical. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I think magic is really your only option.
1: <laughs> this is raising lots of really interesting physics questions that. <laughs> Actually, if I were to go away and get a whiteboard and have a look at it,
0: they're very cool. (laughs) Moving on slightly from that, another article that we had to discuss on this, this topic of combat was weapon maintenance. Now, it's not something that we've discussed too much outside of this, but it kind of moves on from the wearing of bows, needing to warm them up, the potential breaking of bows if you're overdrawing them. So, moving this on to any and all weapons in. Role-playing games and in real life, how do we find it comparing?
1: Do we do weapon maintenance? Yeah,
0: I was going to say that it's never really something that's discussed.
1: I've had
2: a few players that would talk about maintaining the weapons, but very few. Mm. A weapons is, is something that usually gets taken for granted as being there and always being okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There was an interesting set of mechanics for the third edition of Dungeons & Dragons, which I've still got the document for. It was, it was, in fact, on one of the discs that I received when I was up at, at yours, Robert. I got a couple of CDs with a whole bunch of Word documents and things that were floating around the internet as it was at the time, early 2000s. And it was to do with weapon maintenance. And it was what I thought was a very good weapon quality system, where you determined what the quality of the weapon was given certain results for your attack rolls, namely, like, critical misses and things, or if it was within a certain range, you would reduce the quality of the weapon over time until eventually it broke. But there isn't such a thing for that in 5th edition. Uh, It's just kind of all assumed to happen in the background. Is there a basis in reality for that? Are there any weapons that people have had ever in history that just don't get dull, that don't need maintaining?
2: No. There's a simple answer to that one. From a mythology point of view, it's impossible. Hmm. Yeah.
1: To stick with archery for a second, from point if you have a bow, though, is there anything you can do to maintain a bow as such?
2: Yes. Keep it dry. Keep it dry, but not too dry. Yeah. There should always be a, a certain level of moisture in a bow. Yeah. Uh-huh. But don't soak it. <laughs> right. So
1: get out your uh, Nivea for bows. <laughs>
2: It should always be oiled, ideally with something like boiled linseed oil. For traditional wooden bows, you know, the self wood bows, for the non hatchers out there. A self wood bow means a bow that's made of one piece mm-hmm. of wood. You get different types of bows. You get self wood bows, you get laminate bows, which are basically well, two or more different types of wood glued and sandwiched together. And then you get composite bows, which are can be different materials like bone, bone.
3: Yeah, the Inuit bows, I think, were, was it whale bone and sinew?
2: Yes, ingenious-looking thing, so much so that when Europeans first found them, they completely underrated them because, as far as they were concerned, he's struggling the opposite way from what he should have been. All right, but coincidentally, critical role. As much as I am a fan, if you look at some of the early intros for the Critical Role show, Laura, who plays Vex'alia, you'll see her drawing a bow, which is a recurve bow, but looks strong backwards.
3: Which, considering most of them actually take part in archery at rainfairs. They should have known better.
1: <laughs> Maybe there's a an endemic of people stringing their recurve bows at the uh, research Fears wrong in America. Well, I think it's something that does happen pretty
2: regularly all over the place.
0: Well, they've never had to really use a bow in warfare. America's a very young country.
2: <laughs> <laughs> George Washington, at one point, he requested that as men be issued with bows and arrows instead of muskets because of the amount of smoke that <laughs> was created on the battlefield. Oh.
1: Hmm.
2: It, it made it impossible for men to fight. Arrows, it would be much more effective because they wouldn't have been creating as much smoke, especially in a defensive position.
1: Unless they were firing really fast.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, the amount of smoke that a bow and arrow generates should be significantly less <laughs> than a musket.
3: <laughs> yeah. Having used muskets and being in a unit firing a musket, the amount of smoke is
2: ridiculous.
1: Was that during the, the Wars of Independence?
2: Yes. If you imagine a contingent of men defending a fort, you know, you're surrounded by walls. You're constantly firing muskets, that smoke's going to build up in the confines of that fort. Sure, yeah. So even just day to day doing things while that smoke's building up during the conflict, he's been looking at it and thinking. At that point, the accuracy in all muskets in comparison to bows and arrows, you were probably just as accurate and just as able. Plus, you would actually had a better rate of fire. Muskets were three
3: shots a minute for the best units, I think.
0: See, uh, am I the only one that really wanted to be there at the time with a tub of talcum powder and just, like, talking up the strings so that when they <laughs> shot the arrows, it
1: still smoked up? Yes. Yes, you're the only one. <laughs> I've got a wee bit of talcum for you, boys. <laughs> have you got a wee minute to get that for the talc boy? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing worse than a bit of Archer's chief. (laughs) Anyway,
2: so, yes. So that's how you would maintain a bow.
0: Yeah. Now I really want to add some of that into our games, though. When, in The Lost Mines of Phandelver, the module that we're playing through at the moment, one of the early uh, instances was you guys coming across a a goblin's cave and part of it flooded.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, a bow getting caught in a flood, what would be the the way to resolve that? I mean, is that bow then ruined, or can you dry it out, but try not to get it too dry, or is it usable but dangerous?
2: That's the reason for keeping oil. the oil. The oil basically coats the outside of the, the wood and makes it waterproof, in effect. Okay. Yeah,
3: it would be extended lengths of time submerged in water that would ruin
2: it. What's the, I mean, there are not some good of the from the Mary Rose. Uh, I mean, obviously they were immersed in water and mud for centuries, and they have actually managed to bring some of those bones to a state where they have been able to fire the actual bowl itself. Rather than just making reproductions.
0: That's interesting.
2: I think that would be any archer's dream to use one of those boats. (laughs) Of course, yeah.
1: In the interests of pedantry,
2: (laughs) what about the bowstring? Bowstrings are a lot more contentious. Traditional bowstrings were to be made out of linen, which, although a fairly strong fibre, is susceptible to wetting. If it gets wet, it does become slightly stretchier and more prone to breakage. Yeah,
3: I think the medieval archers would keep a spare string under their hat, if I
2: mind right. Yep, and a waxed paper, parcel basically, to keep it dry.
1: <laughs> Says your dungeon master, and are you wearing a hat? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no. But there's a lot of things like that, but that, I mean, that the whole concept of, and you see it all the time in fantasy movies, characters always have their bow strung. Yeah, that's really not good for it. Easy way to ruin a bow to keep it
0: strong So all these bows found uh, in, what was it, the Merry Rose? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. all those bows, uh, I'm assuming they wouldn't have been strung then?
3: No, a bow would only be strung right before combat. Right. Or
2: before use.
1: So, how, how long do you have a bow strung before you have to worry about it working less good? It work less good? <laughs> <laughs> it work less good now? Okay. <laughs> Much badness has bow done now. <laughs> no shooting, no good.
2: There are so many factors that that depends on. Things like the you know, materials that the bow's constructed. Um, I In a self bow, wouldn't actually be that long right? before it, it would start to be set to the strength, in other words, that it would form the curve.
1: Right. So would you see it in, like, from comparing the start to the end of a particularly long battle, perhaps?
2: That yeah. would be too bad because of the fact that the bow's been worked constantly. Oh, right, okay but if it's just sitting at rest without being used.
3: It's like a spring. If you compress a spring and leave it compressed for a couple of weeks, it doesn't expand
0: back out to where it should. So are we talking minutes or hours?
2: You would be talking hours before it to start to have an effect. For it to have a significant effect, you would be running into things like these and stuff like that. Right.
0: But still, in our games, weeks have passed and I don't think there's been a single description of an unstringing of a bow. It can all be ab- <laughs> abstracted into uh, during your rest period, this would be the standard thing right. you would do.
1: I thought that was a warning there. <laughs> <So> prepare yourself, <laughs> boys. Next game. <laughs> Next game, twang. Big, cu- big, big, uh, big
2: boomerangs rather than bows. From my personal perspective, I tend to think of that as being the point where I always think of carrying a bow unstrung and when I see get the bow out, I would automatically think, at that point, this where I'm stringing it. To string a bow doesn't actually take that long.
0: How long would it take and how labour-intensive is it?
2: It's not particularly.
3: The longest part's the warming up. Actually, stringing the bow takes a few seconds.
2: The easiest way of describing it is, like, warming up a muscle before the exercise. You just put some heat into the bow so it's, it reduces the, the risk of it breaking.
3: It looks a bit rude at times as you're rubbing the shaft of your bow. <laughs> doesn't
2: it look a bit rude? It looks very rude
0: before you encounter a room full of big muscly guys you uh, you, you rub your shaft vigorously
1: that's it yeah minding your string <laughs> so I think maybe we should move on a bit yeah we've talked about bows not the bows aren't interesting just we've got limited time and there are other weapons perhaps maintenance or even other topics
0: I think to achieve this transition we should probably talk about other weapons with wood in because I'd imagine oil would come into play a lot in reality so things like spears and axes Yes. Cool, right, so, <laughs> moving
1: on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, and we have a spearman here. Yes, i one of my many falcs.
1: Robert's never seen without a shaft in his hands. It's
2: always a big one. <laughs> need both hands for mine. So, oh, um, yeah, uh, what was his name? That's <laughs> <laughs> spears. Gertrude.
3: Yes, he actually named the Spear Gertrude. Yes.
2: The name Gertrude comes from the Norse language, and it literally means spear power, it means Gertrude. Hammers and axes, especially, are something that need a wee bit more you know, looking after with regards to the shaft that we obviously usually neglect in other other A hammer or an axe head is a pretty big lump of metal. As long as you keep it dry and clean, going to make much of a difference. the shaft, really, that is going to need a bit, a bit more maintenance and things like spears and things like that.
0: Were they commonly maintained or were they uh, produced? in enough numbers that people just didn't care? Like, as soon as your spear or axe broke, you just grabbed another one?
2: Spears are slightly easier because all you did was you looked for a, a fairly long, straight branch or bow from a tree, dropped it off, the spearhead went way. But things like uh, hammers and axes, there's a lot more work goes into fitting the shaft or the handle for those it needs to be properly fitted to the head so that it fits the eye properly, so that it hangs properly. There's, there's so many different, you know, you've got to align the head with the form of the, the handle. And again, moisture moisture content of the wood is a big part of all things like that as well. Because that's partly To get a proper fit, you need to keep a consistent moisture content in the wood. If the wood dries out, it will shrink you know, the head will become loose before. Final different kind of aspects of
0: that you need to speak into account. So if we were to transpose this into a gaming context, I think one of the main things we can take is that weapon maintenance is something that just is automatically assumed to happen during downtime, and that people have a supply of these things in their packs, and that maybe you could have it be uh, a specific uh, narrative point where if someone's being captured or they're lost for an extended period of time that maybe they can't maintain the weapons as much but for the general day-to-day running of the game, it's not needed to be thought about too much.
2: I think in a situation like that, it's something where it would become an automatic thing that you do yeah. when you look at kind of most kind of bushcrafters or kind of survivals it's considered as automatic thing These things are what your life depends on, so you will look after them. It's a given, and I think that's probably why it's not given much thought about. Uh, You also get into the thing where
3: I've heard in games where magical items can't be destroyed, so if you've got a magical weapon, if it cannot be destroyed, the maintenance becomes less important.
0: I I can kind of understand some of the idea where magical weapons can't be uh, destroyed. I mean, one... In the game mechanics sense, it represents a huge investment of either time and effort, or money and skill. Yeah, I think
3: it's the enchantment itself that protects the
0: the weapon and keeps it in a pristine condition. Yeah.
3: That's why in games you can find a hundred-year-old weapon that looks as if it was last year's yesterday.
0: And yet, in reality, a fantastic magic weapon would be a bow that never needs to be unstrung or warmed up. Just an instant-use bow would be infinitely useful. <laughs>
1: yeah, I yeah. find I find the new life the the magic weapons you want to look at.
2: Yeah. <laughs> they
0: just have this, this minor quality.
1: Interestingly,
2: on a similar note though, I mean it, it's things like that because you can look at things and, and it's one of the aspects I quite like is finding kind of similarities with what would be seen as something magical. But to us is something once you, you find a weapon that never never tarnishes, and never rusts. Steel, steel. Mm. Yeah. Do you
1: know
2: what I mean? That suddenly takes on a if you, if you transported that back to the medieval period, you'd be seen as having magical properties. Yeah. Yeah. Where that means stainless steel itself was an accident.
3: Yeah. Was it? Uh, it was a guy who was trying to come up with a better form of steel and had just been making up batches and then leaving them to the side. And a few weeks later, everything was rusty. The part this one chunk went back through his notes and found that he'd made stainless steel, and that's kind of how that came about. That is cool. I can't remember what it was he was
0: trying to make. <laughs> hmm. I really love that aspect of some fantasy stories. Uh, like you were saying, Robert, the kind of the scientific reality and how people of that period might perceive it. All these like star metal swords. Well, it could be that they've just found a significant amount of titanium and are able to make a really lightweight, strong weapon yeah,
2: out of it. exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's, it, it's looking at things, you know, for instance, you're kind of a plus one sword of what is it that makes it a plus one? It's possibly the fact that it, it has been like that, you know, made with an exotic blend of metals that, that makes it naturally sharper. Maybe hmm. Might be an armor class sword.
1: manufactured the best swords in the world, ever. Armor hmm. class. Don't, no, 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 not until oh, they pay absolutely. their, I until they pay that. their advertising fee. No, not a thing. <laughs> Actually, that, that's a
0: fairly good point, though. We might need to go and have a word with Armour Class and see if we can get a sponsorship or something. <laughs> Going back to third edition, because that's the, the edition of the game that I've spent the majority of my time playing, from when it came out, late 2000s, early 2001, uh, when I first started getting into to D&D, and I found out that it was a thing, rather than just something made up, like the, you know, the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. <laughs> <This> is-
1: <Yeah. laughs> you mean made up in a different yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> like, I didn't know it was a game, first and foremost. When I found out that it was uh, an actual thing and I started playing it, 3rd edition was how I I started getting used to the rules. I started playing 2nd edition, but very quickly moved on to 3rd. And a lot of the optional rules for that were were quite interesting. And Masterwork weapons, interested me. They were demi-magic weapons. They were allowed to get a plus one, I think, just to your attack bonus, but not to damage. So they weren't as good as magical weapons, but they were... Supposed to be made specifically for you or made by an especially good smith. So something like a, a lighter, stronger steel that
3: is easier to move it quicker. You're more likely to hit, but it's not going to actually help do any extra damage. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah.
1: It could even just be a balance thing. Swords actually balanced.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, properly balanced. Having used unbalanced swords, balance does make a big difference. Have i learned with the iron bar, as it was referred to. Yes. Yeah.
2: be.
1: Get my whiteboard,
3: get my whiteboard. That <laughs> was, that
2: was, was that a sword breaker that I used? Team manufacturer. Ian and I used to do for our listeners, Stuart, whatever. Um, Ian and I used, and Mark as well.
1: I no, it's all right. Don't worry. If I, if I'm a, if I'm a blemish in that memory, you can just.
2: <laughs> uh, we used to do batalina, um and one of the guys that used to fight, he had a sword that was known as a sword breaker because of the amount of swords that I had broken. Yeah, it was like about a five kilo lump of steel.
0: Was it shaped into anything remotely weapon like, or was <laughs> it in fact just an iron
3: rod? No, no, he,
1: he walked on with an anvil, went, this is my sword.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it weighed a bit the same. It wasn't far, off. It, 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 it was shaped like a sword, uh, just a very, very large, very heavy one. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the things that, in actual fact, that came up in some of the trades that would be uh, with regards to the swords. Balance can make a, such an impact on how good a sword is, how good a sword feels in your hand, and how fast you can move it. A sword's badly balanced, it can make it very slow and cumbersome, whereas if it's well well balanced.
1: Does it not also depend on what you want to do with it as well? Because really, even Swordbreaker would have found a use in a battlefield, you went, oh that guy's got a, he's nifty with his sword, go and you fight him, make sure you put him out of the way.
2: There's a story from The Crusades. The original two seeds, where... <laughs> not,
1: the, not the ones we've got these days.
2: No, not the no. ones. But Richard III was confronted by... salah was it? The very man. And basically they said, right, we're sick of losing so many men. Why don't we just do it this way? We'll see who's got the best So, And Richard is, is quoted as having authored one of his anvil blocks to be brought forward from the baggage tree. And an anvil block, obviously, as you can imagine, is basically a tree stump. A very really big one that they would set an anvil block on. He drew out his broadsword and smote it in two with one mighty swing, therefore obviously showing the strength and the power that his sword had. But then Salah Hadin in the story, brings out his sword, a curved blade a saber-type sword, and he calls forth one of his courtiers and then throws the courtiers' silk scarf into the air and cuts it into a thousand pieces before it hits the ground, basically saying, which one do you choose? Both swords are fantastic in their own way. But how do you see which one's better than the other? The Rotor sort would of, never able to do that to the scarf, but then again, to Sal and trying to do the same thing that Richard had done with his sword with his sort of a shatter
0: because it was too hard. See, I, I would love to be there at the time and witness this. I, I realise it's a, it's a story, but if there was any actual historical basis to it, to, to see actually, uh, Richard got his sword stuck and just managed to penetrate the, the tip of the stump and that Saladin actually managed to cut the scarf in two, and then spent the rest of the time just flailing around with this sword missing. <laughs> 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 I can do I can do And they both just agreed to never speak of the situation ever again.
2: Yeah, let's let's go back to the <laughs> board. Until everything else happened, it'll sound much, much cooler. Yes. <laughs> we can agree between ourselves and make ourselves look like asses here.
0: <laughs> so Trying to drag this kicking and screwing back to, to weapon ma- maintenance and, and things and um, getting into attacks and things, which is going to lead us into the, the next topic I've got written down. So swords and things, similar situation. If it's your standard iron or bronze weapons, you're going to need some sort of oil or something to try and stop it from oxygenating, I would assume. Bronze
2: also loses an edge a lot quicker. Yes, bronze is a much softer metal, totally different process for keeping an edge on bone. Bronze weapons are shit. <laughs> It yeah. is the easiest way of saying it. They just don't hold an edge. <laughs> In the Bronze Age, there are things like bronze axes. But, for the most part, archaeologically, they're seen as being items of status rather than things that were actually used. Because their stone counterpart were pretty much seen as being better, more effective, more efficient. They don't hold edges. That they're seen as being items of status and symbols of leadership, especially when it comes to things like bronze swords and such. That's why books and iron and steel barred surpassed use of yeah. copper
1: and bronze. Yeah. Bronze went straight to the principle of making medals out of and only medals.
0: And even then, only the shit ones. <laughs> <laughs>
1: only the shit medals. Yeah. <laughs> the much harder stronger gold goes to the best <laughs> medals. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the day I saw that man with the, the gold broadsword claiming 40 <laughs> men for his own. <laughs> Every man leaving a facial imprint on the blade of the sword. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I've of a few things think. during
0: the <laughs> <laughs> and there I've, I've already got another Dungeons and Dragons magic item the hammer of many faces it's a solid gold hammer <laughs> 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 just leaves a different imprint every time you hit someone it's magic <laughs> so from weapon maintenance and talking a bit about the, the weight and balance and, and creation of these things sort of looping back around to action economy We were talking at the beginning about bows and the number of arrows that you can loose in a round. But how do we feel that compares to melee combat in the Dungeons & Dragons system?
1: Well, I mean, in general, melee combat should be more attacks per round. Maybe not more successful, necessarily more successful attacks, but certainly more attacks per round than ranged combat, I would imagine. Mm. Because you just flail your your arms around.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think it could be described as... Like that when you only get one or two attacks per round because you would be able to make more attacks but it could be described as these are the number of openings that you get where you can get an opportunity to try yeah, and true. make the attack. So it's like a back and forth attack and parry, attack and parry and then you see an opening and that's what your attacks are coming from. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, especially with things like daggers and knives because they are so quick you could attack quite a few times. Yeah. That it's actually getting through your opponent's defence that's the issue.
1: That's a good DMing thing but I get, there should be situations where you know, say you've got a particularly um, sadistic player, I don't know where you'd find <laughs> one of them, but say you've got a really sadistic player and they're attacking someone who is innocent and unarmed, right? And for for whatever reason they have enough hit points you can get both of one attacking. Then to say you're getting one attack every six seconds into that person I think, as re-actors I think that seems unrealistic, but I think i any person thinks that someone who takes six seconds to swing a sword and then reset is, is you know, on slow pills or something. <laughs> so it's, it seems a bit unrealistic from that respect. But one thing the game seems to do yeah. quite a lot for think I mean, for a lot of the fighter-based classes, they get extra attacks per round as they level up. Mm. Uh, fighter has the action surge thing where they can jab yeah. an extra attack in if they need to. So I think what they're trying, what's been tried to do from the rules point of view is add in these extra attacks that should be there for the people that really need them. Yeah. Mm. Uh, if you like yeah but without making it explicitly oh you just get to attack 10 times as much
0: as the other guy yeah it's kind of like a a layer above proficiency because proficiency uh you know the ability to use a weapon without you accidentally hitting yourself is supposed to represent you know how to use this weapon well in combat but it seems that fifth editions abstracted that concept slightly a bit more and said well proficiency is you know what it looks like (laughs) <laughs> and actually, uh, being of these fighter classes, getting more attacks is supposed to be representative of you knowing how to fight better.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. There was an interesting concept that I came across a while ago by a YouTuber by the name of Lindy Beige.
1: Oh, I love him. Lindy Beige.
0: And he was talking about how proficiency with weapons doesn't seem to match between his experience of real life and his experience with role-playing games, where if you use a weapon a lot you might know how to defend against it. You'd know the techniques surrounding it. And similarly, if you've seen a weapon used against you quite a lot, you might have some better idea than someone who's never encountered it before. Mm. Would you say that the d system accurately abstracts it? So not accurately portrays it, because we know it, it's not accurately portraying it verbatim, but there's a way that we could describe it, a way that we could think about it for it to sort of make sense. Do you think that that's too much in the way of mental gymnastics, or do you think D&D sort of does it okay? I
1: think... It-
2: handles it reasonably
1: well. I think one of the clever things that d d does I think, is it just and rather than give her an explicit rule as to how these things might affect your bit to defend against something for example, rather than explicitly say oh, you get an extra blood, they just bump your armour class up mm. <laughs> a bit. Now they don't seem to do that uh, it's inter- not something I'd thought about before, but thinking about how if you're proficient with a weapon, you should know about how to defend against it as well so it's not something that I'm aware is actually done in 5th uh, edition, at least.
0: No, it's uh, they're, they're very broad it. with it. So rather yeah. than adding loads of different conditions that would only apply in the instance that you're being attacked by a spear,
1: oh.
0: they, they instead just go, Nah, b- bump your armor class up. You're just better at defending.
1: What 5th edition seems to be doing is trying to shed as much of the unnecessary stuff as possible. It's kind of what they've been trying to do since 2nd edition, I think. But <laughs> they've finally reached a, a good balance with it, I think so they're trying to make it a game that's able to be played mm. <laughs> as well as <laughs> something that reasonably well you know resembles uh, real- realism
3: I'd agree with that yeah I think I'd agree as well
2: yay <laughs> a lot of systems tend to tie you down with the mechanics and with the dice roll and D&D with some of the other editions did that but my biggest experience was with 2 and I have to admit a lot of the time when I was DMing, uh, and I like to think I was reasonably good as a DM yeah, <laughs>
3: <Right, Mark. laughs> uh, You never nearly killed a player, not a character, a player, <laughs> unlike some other people. Uh, <laughs> no, but Mark was actually playing. that was the imminent No, that was the game. Mark was DMing, was it not? I think it was. Aye, uh, that was when you were doing your your Mac mm-hmm. And Mark was running it. I thought it was. I thought it was. He was playing, and it was the thing with the oh,
2: dark. No, I'm ducking the the quarter staff.
1: No, that was that was before. What? <laughs> oh, it's
2: <that's> a cool
0: whole...
1: <laughs> There's it's not it's
0: <laughs> We're adding an hour onto this podcast go. <laughs> no, no, I'll I'll hear about it later. Uh, anyway we could do a Daft stories episode. Oh uh, yeah, that would be cool. Throw the dwarf
2: in. Get the black dragon stone the red it cup its balls off. Yes, <laughs> I will see. I, but Five's really looking to make it a lot more story driven rather than mechanics driven and dice roll driven. That I'm, I'm really liking. Because as you see, when I was DMing a lot of the dice rolls out the window for the sake of narrative and I ran it. So the encounters flowed as much as possible. So you had as little dice roll as you needed. I <laughs> Eric, go for a wee, go for a wee.
0: I'm gonna need to edit this bit out. <laughs> also, <laughs> Eric, <laughs> I
1: demand that
2: it gets lifted. I
1: absolutely
2: demand that that gets lifted.
0: I guess we'll, we'll start uh, wrapping up while, while Eric goes upstairs to the toilet. We can uh, sort of end things because otherwise, he's gonna be a, a larger disturbance than he has been. <laughs> Okay, so D D fifth edition, a better system than past ones to sort of achieve a, a nice balance, I think, is what we've landed on, where the realism can be achieved through narrative yep. and it's not sabotaged by the mechanics.
2: Yes, I would certainly say so. Yeah. My experience of it so yeah. far in comparison to previous.
3: I would say this is the edition I've got the most experience with. Having only played a game here and a the game there. I don't have and it has been between like second edition and third edition, so I've not had a kind of stable experience <laughs> with them, but uh, fifth edition—it's uh, just my mental instability that shows up in that.
0: <laughs> but as I think, it's a—it's a good system. Yeah, I would like to note that there is no argument about your mental instability showing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're all looking at
2: a... <laughs> <laughs> our <of a>, um... feet.
1: <laughs> I think like. In in terms of what we've managed to cover today, I think there's possibly a lot we could have covered as well. So if this becomes a thing, we try again. We should really try and revisit the subject?
0: Yeah, because we haven't really covered like armor class. Yes, that was on my list to to cover. But not only have we been going for more than an hour, but now now Eric's back, so I'm not going to be able to uh, keep recording. But yeah, armor class and hit points and and armor that.
2: class Country beast and joker in Glasgow,
1: fantastic song. <laughs> Stop it! Stop it! (laughs) Their cheque has not cleared, so (laughs) it's bounced back three times already.